from the throne come flashes of lightning and thunder. This would have been the most awesome scene in all of creation. And before nuclear power, this is the best example of absolute raw power. There is nothing more raw and power and spectacular visuals that scare the crap out of you and shake the soul of your being other than the nuclear bomb being dropped that like a thunderstorm. Our thunderstorms here are not that impressive. And even then, they're kind of scary at times and can do lots of damage. But from what I've heard, if you go up into places like Canada and stuff, the electric storms make our storms look like little gnats and stuff. Just they light up the sky tremendously. They shake the earth. They're just constantly flashing like crazy everywhere. And there's this pastor guy that I was listening to. His name is D.A. Carson. And he grew up and lived in Canada. And he talked about just as growing up and even today as an adult, they're just scary. They're, they're mesmerizing. They're awe-inspiring. They blow your mind in the wonder. And, and they just light up the whole sky. And they don't stop flashing like some kind of strobe light. And the spectacular and the noise and the thunder. And the rainstorms they get are just blow anything in America away from what he describes it. And other people in other parts of the world describe it. If you were to stand in this and you see the throne and all this lightning and thunder is coming out of it, that would just be raw power. And, 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 and even a nuclear bomb is just us harnessing something God already created, the implosion of an atom. This is God's raw power coming out to display how powerful he is. And if you're a human in the ancient world, and even today, and you're in the middle of that kind of lightning storm, you're going to be scared. I mean, we've read reports where just one tiny little lightning bolt kills people and hits them randomly, right? Let alone be in the middle of that. And we see this on Mount Sinai in chapter 19 when God comes down on the mountain and he comes down in fire and earthquakes and lightning and, and God literally speaks to the people the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not. And he speaks his voice down. And this sight is so spectacular that God invites them to the mountain to be his representatives and they're so scared of their mind they say, we don't want to hear God anymore. We don't want to see God anymore. Moses, you can see him and hear him and tell us what we need to see and hear from you. This is so earth-shattering that thousands upon thousands of humans, out of all of them, not one of them, other than Aaron, Joshua, and Moses, are brave enough to see this and keep seeing it on a regular basis. That's the raw power that you're seeing on an earthly mountain on earth. Imagine the raw power that's coming out of the throne in heaven. And that's the idea. God is absolutely powerful. And, and there is and the, the noises, the crashing, the thunder, everything. And this is a spectacular event. Not only does it root you in Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, but it demonstrates the power that we see here. Now before the throne, some translations say a glass, a sea, glassy sea. Now the idea here of glassy, when we get the picture of glass, we get this picture of a glassy, like it's totally placid. It's, it's like a beautiful sunset and the evening where the water is calm and placid and it's going down and kind of has this light and we get this idea of calmness. The problem is glass doesn't look like that in the ancient world. In the very beginning of glass, like the diamond, they didn't know how to cut it and it was actually, you could not see through it. It had a frosty look to it. 
And so it wouldn't be something that would be really impressive, okay, to look at or beautiful in a lot of ways. The idea here is first and foremost, we need to allow the Bible to interpret the symbology for us. And all throughout the Bible, every single time, and I mean every, literally, every single time that you see C, it always, always represents chaos. C is scary. In the ancient world, the three most powerful, descriptive, vivid images of chaos, raw chaos, is the raging sea, darkness, and the serpent slash leviathan slash dragon. We talked about this in Daniel chapter 7. These strange leviathan-like beasts come up out of the sea. There's nothing good about that. God uses the sea, the raging sea, to come down on Egypt to destroy them. The, the, the book of creation, book of creation, creation in the book of Genesis in the very beginning begins with this raging sea and the Holy Spirit comes over and calms it and subdues it before he begins to create because he creates out of order, not chaos. All throughout the ancient religions, the sea is always chaos. There's pictures of people taking spears and killing the sea, not because they're insane, but because it's a metaphorical picture of chaos and, and all that kind of stuff. We see all throughout the prophets, the sea begins to transform not just into an abstract concept of chaos and disorder, but actually becomes a symbol of humans and nations and armies because humans and massive political forces and humans and nations are the most chaotic thing in the entire world. We have done more destruction to the earth and our sin when we get together in large groups than any sea has ever done. And, and, and even today, the sea is scary, right? Outer space and the sea are like the two. I don't ever want to go down to those depths or into the outer space. Like you watch these movies, like you could die so quickly, right? It's just out and you're helpless. But even today with all of our technology and with our greatest ships like aircraft carriers, a hurricane still wipes everything out. We can never harness the sea. And I don't think we ever will. Because when Jesus wanted to prove to the disciples he was God, he walked on the sea and calmed it. And it was the most ultimate example of his ability to subdue chaos and that he was God other than the resurrection conquering death. And these were considered the two things that humans cannot conquer. And, and he proved that he was God by controlling the sea and calming it. God often wraps the storm around himself to judge people. All throughout the Bible, sea is always chaos. It always represents humans. And so we can't interpret this in any other way than chaos. So what is God trying to explain here? The word here of clear actually means sparkly. It's not communicating the idea that it's clear. It's a Greek word that actually should be translated sparkly. And the idea is that it's sparkly. Now why would it be sparkly? Because there's tons of lightning coming out of the throne of God. And it's a sea that's raging and turmoil. If you've got thunder and lightning and a storm and earthquakes, that sea is not calm and placid. It doesn't even fit the context of what's happening. The throne of God is lightning and stuff. And the idea here is that this sea represents humanity. And the same way that the beast and Daniel come up out of the sea, that they're just beastly nations coming up out of the people. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus II, um, all the Tiglath Pilsar III, they were all just humans that came out of the, the, the sea 
of humanity, the evil and the chaos of humanity, and then built an even more beastly representative. And so you should go back to Daniel 7. Everything here is making you think of Daniel 7, and it will continue to make you think of Daniel 7. So what is the sea? It's humanity. And the idea that you're going to see here is as we go deeper, we're going to be introduced to the, the living creatures, and then we're going to be introduced to the angels. And the idea is that John is standing there, and between him and God is this sea of chaotic, sinful humanity. And then between them and God are these three concentric circles of angelic beings. What is one of the purpose of angels? To keep you away from God so that God's glory doesn't kill you as a sinner. And the idea is that for humans to get to the throne of God and have an intimate relation with Him, they've got to go through all that. This is always the picture that God has painted. And in the first testament, God had them build a tabernacle. And the, the tabernacle had three sections to it. It had an outer courtyard that was smaller than this room. It had a tent that was small. It was about 15 feet wide by 45 feet long and 15 feet tall. It's a very small tent, like a laundry room in some of your houses. Okay? And then they had an inner room, the Holy of Holies, which was a cube, 15 by 15 by 15. There was only one gate into the tabernacle. And the idea is that if you wanted to get into the presence of God, you had to first be circumcised into the Abrahamic covenant. Then you had to bring a perfect unblemished lamb that cost you lots and lots of money. You had to sacrifice and slaughter it, which if you've ever killed an animal and cleaned it, it doesn't just happen in five minutes. It's a lot of time and it's a lot of blood. And once you're covered with all that blood, it is sticky. You have to sacrifice this animal that you love, an animal that you bring into your house and treat like a pet and get attached to, then you kill it. And then you bleed it out everywhere, cut it up and dissect it. You divide it with meat and bones and intestine and things. You lay it on the altar. You watch it burn. You say your prayers. And then that's all the further you can go. Then if you happen to be part of the tribe of Levi, you could go into the holy place where the lamb stand is and that kind of stuff. And then if you were the high priest, one time a year, with a goat sacrifice, you could go into the Holy of Holies where the pillar of fire is. And only then you can't see anything because you have this sensor with billowing smoke coming out of it. And you go in, billowing the smoke everywhere. You can't see anything. You just walk until your knees hit the Ark of the Covenant. You take the blood and pour it over top of it. And then you back out and you hope to God you don't do it wrong because God's going to kill you. <laughs> and even then, all you're getting to get to is a giant pillar of fire that you can barely see. And the whole idea is that you are so sinful and so cut off from God that you have to go through all of that just to see fire that represents God. Now you're brought to Revelation. And the idea is that you're so sinful and so caught off from God that you have to make it through these scary angels that were able to wipe out Son and Gomorrah and other judgments throughout the Bible. Angels that came into the camp of Sennacherib with Hezekiah and killed 185,000 people in one night. That's, that's almost two Ohio State football stadiums of people. One angel or a group of angels wiping them all out. Angels that devastated entire armies during the time of Elijah. Angels that come into Egypt and kill the firstborn of everybody. You're going to have to go through them. 
And then once you go through them, you have to get through these 24 elders, and they're higher ranking than these guys, which means they've got to be scary. And then when you get to the ruling, you get through these four living creatures that have the faces of animals and beasts, and they can move faster than lightning, and fire shoots out of them, and this is even God. And the picture that is being painted is that you are so sinful, John, humans, that you're completely cut off from God, that in order for humanity to get to the throne of God, they're going to have to go through all that. And even John, just to get to that, has to go through all of humanity. He has to plow his way through the sinfulness and the, 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 the depravity of humanity just to get to the angelic beings and then somehow make it through them. This is the picture that is being painted. God is so beyond you. He is so separate from you. This is obviously a picture of pre-Christ on the cross. That the, the John is being taken back to see a pre-Christ on the cross image. And that's going to be made clear when we get to chapter, 20, chapter 5. And what he's seeing is that we are so distant. We are so distant from God. This is one of the, it's an image that is lapped onto all the other images that we have seen all throughout the First Testament. All he sees is chaos. And chaos is being stirred up by God. God is the one controlling. His thunder and lightning is going over the chaos of humanity and is judging it and condemning it. And chaos of humanity can't get anywhere close to the throne of God because there's sin. Because one of the jobs of a priest was to kill anybody who unlawfully entered the tabernacle. And how much more is the job of angelic being to kill anyone who unlawfully enters heaven? Who is it that can get into heaven? Only the righteous. What does John, Paul say in Romans? There's not one who is righteous. No, not one. And this is the image that is being painted. The absolute holiness of God. The absolute righteousness of God. And the absolute raw power that you would have to gauntlet yourself through to get to his presence. And you wouldn't even stand a chance merely just looking at it. When Moses looked at the little bit of God's glory... It made his face radiate with radiation and blinded everybody around him. That was just a little glimpse. And this is the picture that is being painted here. Chapter 4, verse 6, verse 6b. In the middle of the throne and around, or the center of the throne and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like that of a lion. The second creature was like that of an ox. The third creature was that the face of a man. And the fourth creature looked like an eagle flying. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and was full of eyes all around and inside. And they never rest day and night saying, and we'll get to that. So you see these four living creatures. When Ezekiel saw them, he saw the face of uh, an ox on one side, and on the other side of the head, or in the back of that, was an eagle, and then a human, and then a, um, someone blank, a lion. So he saw one figure with four faces on all different sides of his head, and there were four of these figures, all having four different faces. And they represent the four corners of the chariot of God that they pulled. Now, John sees them, and they all have their own face. But each one of them have a different face, but it's the same four faces. Why the difference? I don't know. Remember, the point is not to take these images literally, either. Why these four faces? In the ancient world, the lion represents kingship, authority. So this would represent the absolute kingship and authority of God over all things. 
The ox represents power and servanthood. This would represent the raw power of God, but also the servanthood of God, where God in Psalms says, I am humanity's helper. The ability to bear a large weight that humans cannot bear, a yoke that humans cannot handle. The human represents wisdom. No other creature in all of humanity has wisdom or all God's creation other than angels and God. And the eagle represents divinity because the closer you get to the gods, the more divine it is. And eagles fly higher than most any other bird. And so it represents divinity. This is why eagles were used in the Roman Empire to represent them. The Germans used an eagle to represent them. America used a cross between an eagle and a sphinx. Okay, it's the eagle and its look, but it looks like a sphinx the way it's formed. Um, the way it's positioned. Eagles represent divinity. Why is this important? What's interesting is that when God put the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle in the book of Numbers, there were four tribes that led each of the the four sections. The tribes were divided into um, three groups, um, so four groups of three, and there were one tribe who was the head of each of these sections. The tribe that Judah was represented by was a lion. The other tribe that was represented was Reuben. I think he was a man. The other tribe was Dan. They were an eagle. And the other tribe was Ephraim, and they were the ox. All four sides of the tabernacle, God sitting on the throne in the middle of the tabernacle, all four sides had these four faces. Israel was the earthly representation of Yahweh with these four faces. These cherubim are the heavenly representation of God with these four faces. Now, what I find interesting is that there are four Gospels. And when Matthew writes his Gospel, he emphasizes that Jesus is the King, the Lion of Judah, above all other things. When Mark writes his Gospel, he emphasizes that Jesus is the suffering servant, the ox that bears a yoke that we cannot bear. When Luke writes, he emphasizes to his Greek audience that Jesus is the wisest, most perfect human because Greeks worshipped logic and reason, logos. And when John writes, he, rep- he emphasizes that Jesus is the divine Son of God in a way that nobody else is. And yet, these are four stories about Jesus as the heavenly, earthly God-man. And I think the Bible intentionally did this, where you have the earthly representation, humans, Israel, the heavenly representation, the sons of God, and Jesus bridges the gap between heaven and earth, linking together as the God-man who is heavenly and earthly, and the Gospels are told from these four perspectives. And the idea is we're seeing this here again, because this God-man is going to be introduced to us for a second time. The first time the Gospels, as the servant who dies on the cross, and now as the lamb that takes the throne. And I think this is the idea that's being painted there. And I guarantee you, there's way more being represented here. But this is probably the main emphasis here. The six wings come from Isaiah chapter 6. The four living creatures come from Ezekiel chapter 1. The six wings come from Isaiah chapter 6. They, for two, they are covering their um, face, which would represent humility before God, covering your face, looking down. 
um, without arrogance or pride or threatening his power. Two wings are covering their feet, which would communicate modesty. All throughout the Bible, we talked about this a little bit. All throughout the Bible, you take your shoes off when you enter the presence of God because you're on holy ground. And feet were always considered nasty or um, offensive. We talked about this. You show the sole of your feet to somebody in the Eastern culture. That's offensive. So they're covering their feet, which represents modesty. And the two wings, they're flying, which communicates their speed to execute the will of God. To execute the, these are fantastic beasts through which John would have to navigate to get to the throne of God. All this is painting an absolutely horrifying, scary, impossible, gauntlet, obstacle, a ninja course that you would never be able to even get through the first ramp in order to get to the presence of God because of your sin. The power, no matter how great of a king you are, no matter how powerful a president or a CEO businessman you think you have to wield on Wall Street, you have no chance getting anywhere close to this of your worthiness to get to the throne of God. That's the idea, is to communicate the absolute separateness. The primary function of these living creatures is to declare the holiness, sovereignty, and eternality of Yahweh. So they begin to chant or sing. They never rest day or night. Now, that, I don't know if that means they never rest day and night for all eternity or they're just never resting for this moment in the vision. Don't know. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God all-powerful or almighty who was and who is and who is still to come. First, they declare Yahweh to be holy. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6 where the angels of the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. In the Hebrew, there is no word for very or extraordinary. In order to emphasize something, they repeat something. So in Genesis chapter 1, when God tells them, Genesis chapter 2, do not eat the tree or you will surely die. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says dying you will die. In order to emphasize something, the Hebrew just repeats the word again. So by repeating it three times, it's saying he is holy. Holy. Absolutely holy. Now what does holy mean? Holy has been misunderstood by the modern day America. A lot of times holy is being communicated to us as morally or separate. Um, but this doesn't make sense. If the angels in heaven are declaring God to be holy, it doesn't make sense that they're saying separate, separate, separate is God. That doesn't really communicate an awe or an inspiredness. Or moral, moral, moral is God. That doesn't really communicate the same power. And we're told that things in the tabernacle are holy. The knife that cut the lamb's throat is holy. The, the, the vessel for the blood is holy. Does that mean it's a good bull? It's a morally righteous bull? Good bull. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Not like those evil bulls over there. But that doesn't make sense. Does it, it, separateness, that kind of has the idea of being separateness, but God has called you to be separate from the world, but also to be in it. So that kind of contradicts it in a little bit of a kind of sense. The, the, the word holy, the way that it's used in Leviticus, where it's used more often than any other place, and even the prophets, when you get to the prophets, when you see the seraphim saying, holy, 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 when, whenever you see the, the visions of God, they've never seen anything like this. And we already talked about, there's no words to describe God. There's no way that you can box them. They've never seen anything like this in their entire life. Nothing compares. The context of how it's used in Leviticus, coming to the presence of God for worship and sacrifice, the context of how it's used in the prophets when humans are brought in divine counsel of Yahweh is unique. 
unique and unlike anything else in creation. Unique, unique, unique. This God is unlike anything that you can ever comprehend. The minute you say God is like a three-leaf clover, you're like, really? Does that really do justice? God is the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Yeah, but really? There's nothing. You can't look at anything in creation and say, see, that kind of is like God. I mean, we do that. But if you really think about it, it's so pathetic. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. We're doing the best we can like John is. John says, Jesus looked like a lamb. So I'm not saying, John, you're so pathetic. Okay, I don't mean that. I mean that even John would admit my description is pathetic and the reality of what God really truly is. What, what he's saying is unique, 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 and unlike anything in all of creation. You've never seen anything with such righteous, raw power, love, sovereignty. Nothing in all of creation can compare to what this God is. Nothing in creation can you say it's like that. Only God, only Yahweh is unique. This is why he's worthy of your praise. This is why everybody is wowed and fall down before his feet because only Yahweh is holy. And this is what is being communicated here. Now you say, wait a minute, Corey. Leviticus says, be holy because I am holy. You just said only God can be holy, but now God is telling you to be holy. Yeah, because you can't be holy and you're not holy. You're not unique and anything like creation. And he doesn't mean that you can be holy. He means that you can be used in a holy way. In all those contexts, God is saying, give yourself over to me. So why is the knife holy in the tabernacle? Because this knife is being unique, used in a unique way that no other knife has ever been used. All other knives are to cut your steak for food, or to slice your butter off to add more flavor, or to stab and kill somebody in your vengeance and anger, or to whittle a stick to hand to a child. But this knife, is being used to redeem humanity of their sin. It's being used in a unique way. They can, if you take that knife into another religion and cut a lamb's neck in order to atone for sins there, it won't do anything. It's just a knife killing another animal. But in the tabernacle of God, this knife is unique and unlike anything else. Not in itself. There's lots of knives that look like it, but it's unique because it's being used for a purpose that no other knife is being used for in the world. So when God says, be holy because I am holy, he's saying, let me come into your life and use you in a way that is unique and unlike any other human life in all of creation. You won't just go to work and make more money to have lots of good vacations like everybody else in the world. You're going to go to work to expand the garden and redeem creation and be used by God in an eternal sense. You're not going to just make more money or win pleasure. Yes, those, that's valid and fine, but you are going to go to save people, bring them into heaven, bring the kingdom of God on earth. You're not just going to sing songs for your own entertainment and pleasure. Yes, you will enjoy it, and you will sing, but you're singing them for the worship of a God of the universe, the praise to transcend space and time for all eternity in a way that when Mick Jagger sings, it's just for that moment in your pleasure. And it's catchy and it's fun. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, some of his songs. <laughs> but this is going to transcend all space and time and go into eternity and worship, praise God, and may even lead people into salvation. And no other song can do that. 
like songs written from the heart worshiping God. And I can go on and on and on and on. And that's what God is saying. And so what they're declaring is unique, unique, unique. You will not find anything like this. Anything that you bow down and worship, anything that you make the priority in your life, anything that you invest your time and energy into is nothing pales in comparison to this God sitting in the throne with fire and lightning coming out of him and angelic beings that you have to pass through just to get to him. There's nothing like that in all of creation. Second, he is the Lord God Almighty and all-powerful. This is absolute power. We talked about this. There is no other being in all the universe that is this powerful. He is the image bearers cannot share. Who was and who is and who is still to come. And we talked about this phrase, but it means that he's always existed, always will exist, and exists now. The name Yahweh means I am the ever-present helper who is always with you. No matter where we are in history and time and space, I am always there. I have been in the past from the very beginning before anything existed, and I spoke everything into existence. I am with you now in this moment of your suffering, your triumph, your joy, your sadness, whatever it is, and I have blazed the trail into the future and gone into space and future and time and prepared a place for you and come back to bring you there. There's no place that I have not already been and prepared a place for you and walked with you and taken care of you like me. No other God, no other being has done this. This is what makes him unique. There is no other God in all the universe, no other being, no angel, no human, no animal, no nothing that is both all-powerful and all-loving simultaneously. (coughs) Nobody has the absolute power of the universe and loves you. Allah claims to be all-powerful. He doesn't love you. And the Quran makes that clear. That's not my interpretation as a Christian. The Quran says that. The pagan gods have no power nor love for you. They're limited to finite elements, and they don't love you. When they do love you, run away, because it's a creepy, twisted love. The, the Hindu gods don't love you. They don't even exist. They're an illusion. Buddha says there is no God, and Buddha's dead. There is no other religion where you have an all-powerful and all-loving God. There is no other religion that is a faith-oriented grace religion other than works. And there is no God who is a covenantal relation God, relational God that pursues you no matter what. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders throw themselves to the ground before the throne who sits on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they offer their crowns before his throne. You are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is he worthy of all glory and all honor and all worship? Because you created all things. And because your will, they exist and were created. The first and primary reason that you are compelled to fall before his feet at his raw power and bow down and worship him and no other thing even comes in comparison to him is because all life exists only by his word. And all life continues to exist and is sustained by his word. He is worthy first and foremost by the fact that he is your creator and he sustains all life. The New Testament writers even hint at the idea that if God were to stop thinking about you, you would just cease to exist. Not slowly die over time, but just cease. The angels, the the living creatures, the elders, they all bow down and they say, you are worthy 
of all this worship and all this praise because not only are you unique and unlike anything in all of creation, but we owe our very existence and our very um, sustaining, our continuance to you. That alone makes you worthy of worship and devotion. No other God, no other being, no other animal can claim that, nor has done that for you. So why would you waste your devotion and worship on them? No other being has a guardian angel, uh, 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 an entourage that is this scary and this threatening. I mean, God is so unique and so holy that he's so beyond everything else in the universe that even the most powerful angel in the universe is a gnat compared to God. Yet even they are going to scare the crap out of you and make you pee your pants just by merely looking at them, let alone trying to face off with them. Even the things that God creates are absolutely scary. This is the image of God on the throne. And so the revelation does not begin with God judging the world. The revelation begins with God establishing before you his absolute sovereign power and uniqueness over all things as creator and sustainer. Therefore, anything he does he is completely justified and has the right to do it. Because if he brought you into the land, he can take you out of the land. And if he demand, and he created you, he can demand your worship. But it doesn't stop there. Because chapter 5 is going to show you, but he also loves you. And he's done in a loving act what no other God has ever done either. He's not some God up there just cracking the whip and saying, bow down and worship me. He's a God who wants to walk with you and be with you in a relationship and has sent his son to make that relationship possible. And so one moment we bow before him in absolute wonder and fear and respect and awe of the absolute raw terror and power of this divine God. At the same moment, we can call him Abba, Father, and know that we will receive compassion and love from him. C.S. Lewis, by far, grasps this better than, in the most simplistic way. He grasps it better than anybody else. When, when Lucy figures out that Aslan is a lion, okay, Aslan, who's the king over Narnia, the mystical fantasy world, she says, Aslan's a lion? And she says, is he safe? Right? Because who really wants to tangle with a lion? And Beaver says, heck, no, he's not safe. He's a lion, dear child, but he's good. That is what it means to fear the Lord in a very simplistic child kind of a way. That brings us to chapter 5, the second part of the scene. The scene now switches from Yahweh as creator and sustainer of creation to Jesus Christ as Lord and redeemer of creation. 